morning. Thank you all so much for being here today. For those of you who braved the cold and snow here in person in Washington, D.C., thank you so much for those of you joining us online. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. I'm Alan Carey, the Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. It's a pleasure to be here with you, which should be a fantastic program today. For those of you joining us here in person, we're going to be running through a couple of hours of programming here in the morning in the auditorium. We'll be taking a look at a couple of videos from Retro Report and digging into some of the unique ways in which speech presents as challenges, whether that's through the arts, whether that's through censorship, whether that's through thinking about some of the unique ways expressive activities have led to challenging conversations both historically and today. We'll also be going into some workshops this afternoon. For those of you online, uh, do please engage as you can. We'll be taking questions through the platform that you see there on the website. Also feel free to engage with us across social media using the hashtag TeacherSphere. So before we begin, I wanted to offer a handful of introductory remarks to talk a little bit about why we wanted to get this conversation together today and a little bit about what Sphere is. So starting with the latter, Sphere Education Initiatives project here at the Cato Institute works with educators primarily at the middle school and high school level on things like free speech, civil discourse, the foundations of civic culture as a mechanism of overcoming some of those unique challenges that drive polarization and tribalism in society today. The reason that we think this is so particularly important and why we want to work with educators is because educators have an outsized role in shaping those kinds of cultural institutions that inform the next generations of Americans. How do we work together? How do we engage in challenging conversations? How do we work across divides and differences and engage thoughtfully, respectfully, meaningfully with different points of view? So we bring together educators with scholars, academics, policymakers, members of Congress to dig into challenging conversations and to think about how do we bring those back to the classroom in a way that support our students in being more effective and engaging in these kinds of ideas. Today's conversation is an exciting one. We're particularly pleased to be working with the team at Retro Report, Dave Olson and the whole crew, to offer this as another way of engaging across challenging ideas that focuses on some of the incredible ways in which media can help bring these conversations to the fore. I'll let Dave talk more about Retro Report and the incredible work that they're doing, uh, but very excited to be here today and collaborating with these amazing folks on these challenging conversations. Coming out of today, I really hope that a couple of things will be true. First and foremost, you'll have an opportunity to think about challenging topics. Again, free speech, film, the arts, the role of artistic freedom and academic freedom, but also the challenging ways that that applies in our schools and our conversations with students. Second thing that I hope you come away with are practical ideas, tools, and resources to help you be more effective in engaging in these conversations in the classroom. Without further ado then, let me turn it over to my uh, co-presenter and co-host for the event today, uh, Dave Olson, the Director of Education from Retro Report. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I know, you know, this is uh, in particular with uh, the weather the way it's been. Uh, I'm guessing most of you in the room and probably several of you joining us online uh, have had a, a day or more of school off this week. So to, uh, uh, to make this a focus for you uh, and to sort of dedicate giving up a Saturday to some professional learning um, is something that I know, you know, Alan and I are, are very grateful to you to, to come and learn with us. 
Um, so my name is David Olson. I'm the director of education at Retro Report. Uh, Retro Report is a nonprofit journalism organization um, that's focused on creating generally short-form documentary films. Um, and our goal in in creating these films is to find ways to connect past and present, to follow up on stories from history, uh, to give context to current events, um, and really to to provide this link between uh, our past and our present. Um, for the past several years, uh, Retro Report has also been uh, dedicated and focused to working with educators. Uh, again, primarily secondary, so middle and high school, but also into to higher ed. Um, and, and focused on creating resources that can make our films useful to you in the classroom. So uh, my job as director of education is to try to lead that work, to uh, make sure we work with, uh, with current and former really high quality classroom teachers to create resources uh, to use in the classroom, and then to engage in outreach with educators wherever we can. Um, really happy to be here today uh, at uh, at Cato and with Sphere. Um, this is an organization that we've we've worked with uh, a number of times over the past couple of years. Um, one of the things that I've found to be true is that Sphere. Uh, treats teachers very well, um, provides really excellent opportunities for educators, um, and presents things to them uh, in a way where, where teachers have access to a number of different uh, angles and opinions and ideas that they can then choose to, to bring back to their classroom. Um, so as Alan and I were dreaming up what this might look like, uh, I came to Alan uh, and said, hey, we have a, a new film in the works. Uh, it's, it's really about uh, this intersection of, of blasphemy and free speech and sort of controversial art. Um, is there something we could do? Is there some programming we could put together? Um, so you're going to see two different films this morning, here from a uh, Retro Report filmmaker, here from uh, an outstanding Cato scholar, um, as we look at, at some of these intersections. Um, and so the other thing is this afternoon, as we engage in our workshops, certainly for those of you here uh, present with us, we're going to go through some of the ready-to-use classroom resources uh, that accompany these films and some others from Retro Report. Uh, if you're joining us online for the morning, uh, I will make sure we, we follow up with an email with the full presentation that we're going to use this afternoon, uh, along with links to, to all of those free resources as well. Um, so... Uh, as we get ready here to, uh, to watch our film, uh, this first one is produced by uh, one of our in-house producers, Joseph Hogan, who you'll hear from after we see the film. Uh, this one focuses on uh, the controversy of uh, an artist, Andre Serrano. Um, and then after uh, Joe speaks, we're going to see uh, another film, newly updated, um, that takes a look at uh, some controversies from the 1950s to the 1980s to the present uh, when we look at... Uh, aspects of popular culture that have been challenged um, and what that means for us both in the classroom as well as in greater society. So I think we're ready for that first film. In the late 1980s, 37-year-old Andre Serrano set out to push artistic boundaries. I decided th there was something new. I wanted to investigate this idea of making photographs that were, in a way, for me, 
going against the grain of photography. The works, they're photographs, but they're very flat planes. They look like abstractions. And so this is blood, monochrome of blood, and then uh, monochrome of milk, piss. So these are the bodies. And then I decided to do something different. I decided to immerse an object into these fluids. And so the object that I immersed was a crucifix. And this is the first uh, immersion, piss Christ. For that photograph and other work, the relatively unknown Serrano received a $15,000 reward that was partially funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, which captured national attention. This photograph by Andre Serrano of a crucifix submerged in the artist's urine. It was this painting by artist Andre Serrano, Christ submerged in the artist's urine. An artist that is urinating in a bottle and sticking a crucifix in it and calling it art. I never had anything like this uh, explode over my work. Before long, the issue of whether his work should have received any federal funding from the NEA was debated in Congress. Here's a picture. Title, Piss Christ. Alphonse D'Amato had a picture of the catalog with Piss Christ in it, and he ripped it up. Disgrace. Senator Jesse Helms got up on the Senate floor and denounced me. I don't even acknowledge that it's art. I don't even acknowledge that the fellow who did it was an artist. I think he was a jerk. The whole art world went crazy and the culture wars started. The national debate over what is art, what is smut, and who should decide are members of Congress meant to be defenders of a particular public taste? What I'm most concerned about is the expenditure of public funds and callous disregard of the standards of the public. Texas Congressman Dick Armey was among those in Congress calling for an end to federal funding of any work that could potentially be deemed obscene, even blasphemous. Art should be to celebrate the human experience, not to mock it. And I saw Piss Christ as a, a blatant and ruthless mockery of uh, the Christian religion. Other artists who'd received NEA money were swept up in the Fuhrer. The controversy exploded over an exhibition by the late photographer Robert Maplethorpe. Some of Maplethorpe's images are homosexual and erotic. We're talking about these sleazeballs who have been getting money from the NEA under the pretext of having produced something that they call art. It's an outrage, and we ought to terminate the National Endowment for the Arts because there will be no end to this argument and controversy over what is art and what isn't. Congress trimmed the NEA's funding and eventually imposed a requirement that the agency take into consideration general standards of decency in funding future projects. It is a warning to the arts world that some lawmakers are waiting and watching for their chance to legislate quality, taste, and substance. But a backlash grew among those who felt it was a First Amendment issue. Supporters of free speech, artists, and gay activists were enraged and projected the photographs on the gallery walls during a demonstration. Roll up, roll up, it's the NEA circus. Come and hit Jesse in the nose. The right is trying to, uh, you know, restrict the freedom of expression in the arts, and this is the perfect uh, tool for them in that respect. 
when Piss Christ happened, the government was giving marching bands in America more money than they were giving to the NEA. It wasn't about the money, it was about the offense. I think I stand on pretty solid ground when I say the artwork, quote, called Piss Christ is offensive to the vast majority of the American people. If you say, I like it, boy, I'd say, hey, dig in your own pocket, buy it, take it home, put it on your mantle, cherish it, enjoy it, but don't ask me to pay for it. In 1990, four artists who lost out on NEA funding sued over Congress's decency clause. Their case made it to the Supreme Court, and they lost. Congress, the court said, could choose to withhold funding from potentially offensive art. Will artists continue to paint dirty and offensive pictures? Yeah, they'll do that. They'll do it forever. But at least when we dispense the public funds, we can establish some criteria that will inhibit their doing of it. More than 30 years later, a similar controversy over what to do about art that offends erupted at McAllister College during an exhibit of artist Teravet Telepison, whose work is a commentary on the oppression of women in countries like Iran. The point of really making this work was to share images of how women can look and could be in the Middle East, because that's something that you never or rarely really see. But some Muslim students, like Marwan el-Baharawi, thought the private college shouldn't exhibit provocative drawings of women in religious dress, which they found offensive. It's like insulting to many, many students who are uh, seeing in that hijab a symbol of faith and family and religion. I think when the art is insulting to a specific group, when it's invading your own space, when it's coming to your own school, then taking it down is acceptable. The college closed the gallery, covering its windows with black curtains. Literally veiling the exhibition and the neon woman life freedom, which I thought was absolutely absurd. Because the protests and the revolution in Iran is against the veiling of women. After a few days, the college came up with a compromise. Frosted glass windows to prevent so-called non-consensual viewing and content warnings on the door. It sucks. It really does suck to know that you've offended somebody without even trying to. I really want to be considerate about people's feelings and, and people's beliefs, but if I think the work needs to be drawn or rendered or painted in a certain way, I'm gonna go with that. I always go with my gut. For Andre Serrano, that attitude has paid off. As an artist, this controversy emboldened me because I feel like, wow, I did that. And uh, if I could, you know, I feel like if I could take the heat, I'm staying in the kitchen and I've stayed there ever since. Piss Christ, still his most famous work, hangs mainly in private collections. Over the years, prints of it were vandalized in France and in Australia, 
after a Catholic archbishop called for it to be banned. Yet Serrano has continued to explore religious themes in his work. So this is my apartment. My aesthetic is a Christian aesthetic, and so I'm surrounded by the symbols of the church. And as a collector, I, I love living with these things. This piece uh, is amazing. It's uh, a little bigger than life size, and it's 16th century. Serrano has always maintained that his Catholic upbringing influenced his notorious photograph. It was a comment on the brutality of crucifixion. I don't think my work is blasphemous. Of course, if I did, I wouldn't do it. Because <laughs> I'm a good Christian, even though I don't talk about it. These days, if Serrano is feeling vindicated after years of controversy, it's for good reason. In June, Pope Francis gathered a group of artists and writers in the Sistine Chapel for a dialogue on how contemporary art can promote social change. Benvenuti. Qui tutto è arte. I was surprised, but I, I was also thinking, my God, my, my dream, they, they've invited me. I think the Vatican uh, understands that I am an artist, uh, a Christian artist, who has always uh, maintained that my work is not blasphemous. I said, uh, Your Holiness, my name is Andre Serrano, and that's when he took my hand, he smiled, and then he gave me a thumbs up. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Hopefully uh, it made you think some things and feel some things. And uh, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to talk about it uh, um, and some of the classroom resources that go with it uh, this afternoon. Um, I Hopefully I'm not stealing uh, Joe's thunder here, but that last image and segment that you saw with him meeting the Pope, which I think is sort of utterly surreal, um, that happened as uh, we were making the film at Retro Report, and it was sort of a, a no-brainer to make sure we included that, since it's uh, utterly fascinating that that's how it, uh, how it turned out. Um, so the, the next person I'm going to bring forward here um, is one of our Retro Report producers. Um, you'll see some more of, uh, of his work later this afternoon we watch, when we watch some additional other clips of different films. Um, but he's a filmmaker that I, I have the privilege to work with, uh, does an excellent job of, of finding and telling really interesting stories, and has a knack for being able to find uh, very interesting characters uh, to, to interview for his film. So um, I'm going to bring up uh, Joseph Hogan, uh, producer at Retro Reports, uh, the person who created this film, um, and he's going to have a chance to talk a little bit about his process and about the film itself. So, Joseph Hogan. Thank you very much, Dave, and thank you for asking them to clap. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, just like Jeb Bush. Um, you did steal my ending, though, so I, I resent that a little bit. Um, uh, well, thank you again very much, Dave, and thank you to uh, Sphere for having us out. Um, thank you all for watching. 
uh, my film, our film, and for braving the cold weather. When I found out uh, a couple months ago that I'd be coming here, I thought, oh, great, I'll be in New York in the winter and I'll be able to go to tropical D.C., but unfortunately that didn't work out exactly as planned. Um, as Dave said, I'm a producer at Retro Report, um, and uh, in that way I'm just like a journalist who writes an article, um, meaning I, I come up with the idea for the story, I pitch it, report it, uh, do the interviews, um, uh, search for archival footage like you saw with our archival producer, write the script, um, and oversee the editing. So I can talk about any element of that process that you might like to talk about in the Q&A. Uh, the question I'll address right now is why I decided to make this particular film um, and what generally I hoped it might do for our audience and for, for students especially. Um, the simplest answer I can give off the bat is that I thought it would be fun. Uh, I had just done a, a couple short films on... Well, one was on uh, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, known as internment at the time. Um, and the other was on the history of uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans leading up to COVID. So those are quite serious, serious topics. Uh, and I wanted to do something uh, that was slightly lighter, frankly. Um, and I also had wanted for a long time to do a story on art and the art world. Uh, I live and work in New York City. Um, and, and, and I've been thinking since I started report, or excuse me, reporting and producing for Retro Report in 2019 that I wanted to do something on art. It seemed like a waste to live in New York and not do something on art. Um, but it's not, it's not really easy to make, and we can perhaps talk about this, it's not exactly easy to make a film um, that's about art that would be used by schools. Uh, generally, as a producer, I have to look for stories with a clear conflict, um, with interesting characters, as Dave said, who are in some way at odds. And it's best to tell a story uh, that raises questions about, say, politics or culture or economics um, that would both resonate with our world today and be relevant to, to people uh, watching our films just as news, because we partner often with The Times and PBS and other uh, news organizations. But that would also be relevant to teachers of history, say, or of government in high schools. Um, so I was mulling possible art stories that would fit this set of criteria. Uh, and I kept thinking about something I'd, I'd heard about when I was in Catholic high school in uh, the early 2000s, or the 2010s. Um, I was taught at that time about an artist, Andres Serrano, uh, who, who claimed to be Catholic and was indeed raised Catholic, but who'd made a, a work in the late 80s uh, called Piss Christ that had managed to upset many Christians, including many Catholics. And I remember I was taught about the controversy um, mainly as it related to Christian believers and the, 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 the difference between those believers who felt that it was indeed blasphemous and that also it was evidence of something like the, the moral rot at the heart of the East Coast art scene versus those, those Catholics, including uh, maybe some of you remember Sister Wendy Beckett, I think was her name. She was a prominent art critic on PBS, actually. Um, and she came to Serrano's defense uh, and, and um, gave some credence to the view that he stated at the time in news reports and, and in news footage that he felt that his work was a comment on, in fact, the commercialization of the Christ image. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I asked him about this when I interviewed him, and he said that actually he didn't even come up with that line himself. 
that <laughs> that uh, that when when the controversy was starting, the art gallery director um, uh, called them up and said, "Andres, I'm getting calls from the government, the NEA, and." and angry donors. Uh, you have to give me something to say about this work. Why did you do it? And Andres is like, I, I don't know. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so the art director was the one who came up with the, with the line, the commercialization of Christ, which Andres then used later, um, and which I think now he thinks is a legitimate way of reading his work. It's just um, uh, uh, he's, he explained this to me at length when I interviewed him, that when he makes a work of art, he's not thinking about what it will mean or how it will appear to an audience. He's simply following something in his gut that, that he can later um, uh, defend on terms that might be palatable to an art critic or an audience. Um, but at any rate, uh, that's how I was taught about the controversy, that it was, that it was one among Christian believers. Um, and and I, I kept thinking about it in those terms uh, until about a year ago, uh, I started looking into the story again and discovered the other part of the story, the fact that it was, in a sense, the beginning of the culture wars, or at least a, a, an early shot fired in the culture wars, and that it led to uh, the partial defunding of the NEA. We include in the timeline of our story a, a, a small slice out of the NEA's budget that happened right after the Serrano and Maplethorpe controversy. But by 1996, Congress had cut the NEA's budget in half from something like $180 million to $90 million. Um, and it didn't really bounce back until, I think, the, the late George W. Bush years and the early Obama years. So it had a lasting legacy in the funding of art in this country. Um, now, when I discovered that, I realized that I might have the workings of a, of a good short film about the past. Um, it had so many good ingredients. And as I looked into it, I, I found all that footage of debate on the House and Senate floors about piss Christ, and I found the footage of Senator D'Amato tearing up the catalog and throwing it on the ground. Uh, I called him up and he, he, he declined to speak about it. Um, and I also found the, the, the protest footage um, from the time. And every good retro report needs a little bit of protest footage in it. So I thought, good, okay, I've got all my ingredients. I uh, found that Serrano was in New York City uh, and in fact had an East Village apartment. So I wrote him and he said, sure, come over, let's talk. Uh, I called up former House Majority Leader Dick Armey um, who has possibly the best name of anyone I've ever interviewed. Um, and he was game to talk, too. Uh, so as I said, I knew I could tell an interesting story. And it would seem to have wider relevance, uh, because it was about government and politics. Um, and a, a big question we always have to ask when we make a short film is, what is the relevance to today? Um, so of course, there was the issue of free expression and the right to offend. Uh, surely that was relevant today to today, excuse me, as colleges and corporations and the general culture debated cancel culture both on the right and the left, and as DEI initiatives or diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives were being de debated even then and facing attacks against what critic, critics excuse me, saw as uh, the policing of speech. Um, and as I said, there was the fact that this was an early shot fired in the culture wars, that it was in some sense the beginning of a political reality that we live in, to, in today and that, that students certainly experience and understand instinctually. But in order to find a third act for the film, um, something that we could focus on, uh, uh, I really needed to find someone linked to Serrano himself, an artist, say, um, uh, who was in a similar situation. And I needed the situation to, to, to end differently. I needed 
for the situation to come to some different conclusion that would suggest that we as a culture had moved forward or that there had been some change or evolution in the story itself. As I was mulling this over starting production, I noticed in the papers uh, two stories that emerged in rapid succession. Uh, the first was about a professor at uh, Hamlin University in Minnesota uh, who was let go for showing an image of the prophet Muhammad in a class on art history that dealt in part with the history of Persian art and, and Islamic art. Um, some students found the showing of, of the Prophet Muhammad offensive to their religious beliefs, but of course that firing caused its own backlash. Right after that, just down the road from Hamlin at McAllister College, a group of mainly Muslim students, as well as some allies in the student body, uh, called for the work of Teravat Tulebison to be taken down, as you saw in the film. And the school, as you also saw, came up with a compromise that generally pleased no one. So I thought, okay, great. Here's the story to, for today. Here's the relevance. So the question in my reporting became, uh, what do we do uh, with art that offends? What, as a culture, have we done with it? How have we responded differently over time? Has there been an evolution there or a change? Um, so the result is the film you just watched. And we could talk about, as I said, any aspect of that. I'll just mention a few highlights from production. Um, I loved meeting Andres Serrano. Uh, I, I walked into his apartment and thought, this is incredible. I could use this as a turn in the story itself. This could be a reveal, just the, the sight of his apartment. Walking in was like walking into a Renaissance or medieval church. Um, and there was more. I, did, I couldn't even film all of it. There was more on the second floor and in, in, in the basement. Um, I also found Serrano to be incredibly charming and funny. Um, I asked him during our conversation, we actually had three conversations, um, what was one thing that reporters at the time got wrong about Piss Christ? Uh, and he said that they kept calling it a jar of urine. It wasn't a jar. It was more like a vat or a tub, he said, because the, the crucifix was itself very big, and all the items he used were very big. Um, and, and so I asked him, so what was it like working with a, with a vat of urine? And uh, he said, well, he kept it in his East Village apartment at the time, and he was working in a particularly hot summer. Uh, he, he referred to these as his grueling working conditions. Um, I asked him, I'm sorry if I, well, it, it's fine. I'll continue. It, it is the morning. But I, I, I asked him, well, okay, Andres, if you've got a, a, a tub of urine, um, I mean, that's a lot. Did you ask for any help, for any contributions? And he said that his, his girlfriend at the time took some uh, sympathy for him or some compassion, felt some compassion, and tried to make her contribution. But he looked at it, and he said, that's just not the right color. Only I produce the right color for my art. So he is a true artist, Andres. Um, he was funny. He was full of funny anecdotes like that. Um, uh, I, I, when I called uh, Dick Army, he was out in Texas. I couldn't meet him in person. We had to do the interview remotely, but I also found him very funny and charming. Um, he's a terrific talker and raconteur, as you might remember. Um, meeting Teravet Telepicin was fascinating. I met her in her uh, artist studio at Portland State University, right there in the middle of Portland. Um, I, I filmed her doing a lot of her work. We filmed her for like two hours just painting, and I have to say it put me in quite a, quite a headspace. It made me think I, I ought to spend a lot more time with artists. Um, you know, I got the sense when I was talking with her that she, of course, disagreed with the critique of her work as advanced by the detractors at, at McAllister College, but she did feel some, yeah, she, 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 
she couldn't help but feel badly. And I think she was at that time still working through how it was going to affect her work and how it was going to affect her process. Because as she said, uh, she didn't want to make art with the sole purpose of offending people. She didn't see that as a valuable, um, a valuable mission in itself. Uh, Marwan uh, was very nice to talk with me. Um, I, I wrote, and this happens often, I wrote many of the of the students and people who were who were leading the opposition to Teravet's work at the college, and none none responded. That happens often. Um, Marwan did respond. He uh, he he wasn't part of that initial protest, but he did write a, a piece in the student newspaper about it and in defense of those students. So he was happy to come out. He he was actually visiting New York at the time, so it was perfect. We just brought him to our office and interviewed him, and it was his first time in New York, and you could see his face. He was so excited. All he wanted to do was talk about the city. He 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 was in he was in great spirits, and he um, you know he he said what he said in in the film. Uh, he defended his his uh his argument against uh Teravet's work and 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 for taking the work down. Um, but he also said later, and I, I regretted that it didn't really work in the film, but he did say that since then he had been having second thoughts and that he'd spent some time after the protest in the art gallery at McAllister looking at all of Teravet's work, and he started to see those particularly offensive images, at least offensive to him, in the context of everything else that she was doing, and he admitted that he felt torn about it. Uh, he still took the stand he took and he defended it, but he admitted that he felt torn then. Um, and then the final point I wanted to mention was that, you know, it's, it's scary when you, when you go into production and you don't know what your ending is going to be. You don't know what the last minute or 30 seconds are going to be. It's just like doing anything else, it's just like writing an article, it's just like writing a, a work of fiction. Um, but sometimes, you know, a higher power God sends you something that's perfect. And uh, in this case, it was Pope Francis inviting Andre Serrano out to the, to the Vatican, along with a number of other artists. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I don't know, did, did, did Pope Francis know who Andre Serrano was? Is that what the thumbs up meant? I spent a lot of time wondering, what does the thumbs up mean? Did he understand? Uh, Andre spoke to him in, in Spanish, um, so perhaps it was about that. I don't know, but that's one of the ambiguities of the story. Um, that's it from me. Thank you very much for, for watching, and, uh, and I look forward to the Q&A. the next film that you're going to see. Um, so this one also deals with uh, art, pop culture, uh, and this nexus with censorship. Um, this film uh, was originally produced uh, several years ago, um, but has since been updated. Uh, in fact, uh, just a couple days ago, this past Thursday, uh, we released the update to the film. Um, so just a, a quick word about that. At, at Retro Report, we have uh, about 300 short films in our library um, that we've produced over the last 10 years, uh, which is you know, our entire existence. Um, one of the things we like to do um, is, is you know, believe that we have uh, what we call a, a living library. So um, I would say 
between five to ten films throughout the course of a year. Uh, we like to revisit and figure out, is there something more up-to-date, especially as, as Joe mentioned, that sort of third act, the how does that story from history connect to our lives and our world today? Um, so this one is an example of that, where we went back and, and did some tweaking and uh, some updating to the reporting. So uh, hopefully uh, you'll enjoy this one as well. This is a question particularly for older people. When was the last time you listened carefully to some of the words that the rock singers sing? Rock music has always been controversial. But in the 1980s, many parents felt lyrics had finally gone too far. Rock lyrics have turned from, I can't get no satisfaction, to I'm going to force you at gunpoint to eat me alive. Some of it is encouraging unlawful behavior. And music is harmless? I don't think so. The high-profiled crusade raised age-old questions of what's considered free speech under the First Amendment. I said, if I'm going to go to jail for something, I'll go to jail for free speech. You know what I'm saying? People have been complaining about popular culture since ancient Greece. There are quotes from Plato about the violence in Greek tragedies and their effect on kids. Aristotle disagrees. It really raises the question of how do we know, how do we define harm? MTV gave musicians of the 1980s a new kind of exposure. Today, rock and roll comes right into your living room and not just on records, but in living color. Our daughter was only seven. And uh, she came to me one day and she said, Mom, what's a virgin? And she said, what does that mean? I said, oh my gosh. Then Tipper, her daughter, bought Purple Rain, Prince's Purple Rain. I met a girl named Nikki. Guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I did not feel that was appropriate for my then 10-year-old child to have purchased. It just made us angry. And we knew that others didn't know about it, so we just thought, you know, we have to do something. Susan Baker and Tipper Gore formed the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC, though they soon became known by a different name. The Washington wives are called Mrs. Albert Gore, the senator's wife, and Mrs. James Baker, the wife of the Treasury Secretary. They compiled a list of songs they found particularly offensive, branded the Filthy 15. It was Motley Crue, it was Wasp, it was the album that had the guy with the cod piece that had the big buzz saw on it. I mean, please. I think maybe rating records is going too far. I don't know. That would be like rating books. If it looks like censorship and it smells like censorship, it is censorship no matter whose wife is talking about it. It's censorship. As the PMRC grew to include the wives of 10 senators and six House representatives, the Senate held a hearing on rock lyrics in September of 1985. You can speak directly into the microphone. Thank you. Some say there's no cause for concern. 
We believe there is. The PMRC argued that songs about sex and violence were having a dangerous impact. Teen pregnancies and teenage suicide rates are at epidemic proportions today. And they gave senators a taste of the filthy 15. In all candor, I would tell you it's outrageous filth. And if I could find some way constitutionally to do away with it, I would. It wasn't the first time that pop culture had been accused of poisoning America's youth. In the 1950s, politicians took aim at a different menace, comic books. There seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up been severed from her body. You think that's in good taste? Yes, sir, I do. For the cover of a horror comic. The post-World War II boom in horror, crime, and romance comics alarmed psychiatrist Frederick Wortham, who testified at Senate hearings in 1954. It's my opinion, without any reasonable doubt, and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. There was just one problem with Wortham's case against comics. He manipulated his research to prove his point. Historian Carol Tilley uncovered these distortions, but Wortham had already left his mark on the comic book industry. The comics publishers in 1954 came together to create the Comics Code Authority, the CCA. Publishers would have to submit their stories and artwork to the Code Authority for approval. In short, comics have undergone a major facelifting. There were smaller publishers that chose to go out of business rather than try to comply with the code. It was an industry regulating itself, taking away its provocative edges and dulling them for a very long time. Three decades later, the Washington Wives proposed a code of their own, an explicit lyric warning label, which the industry soon agreed to. But the idea of a warning label worried musicians like Frank Zappa. They may say, we are not interested in legislation, but there are others who do, and there's this fervor to get in and do even more, even more. A few years later, Zappa's fears became a reality. The rap group, Two Live Crew. In 1990, a federal district court judge in Florida ruled that some of the group's songs were obscene and could not legally be sold or performed in three Florida counties. Yesterday, Fort Lauderdale authorities arrested store owner Charles Freeman. He had refused to stop selling the group's best-selling album, As Nasty As They Want To Be. My reaction was, are these people crazy? Adults should be able to listen to whatever they want to listen to. Group leader Luther Campbell refused to cancel an upcoming concert. It was important to perform, you know, and exercise my free speech. Undercover officers who had been hiding in the audience arrested band members Luther Campbell and Chris Wong Wong on charges of violating Florida obscenity laws. If performers do things that outrage the people in a community, this is probably going to happen. I mean, that is not what we were about, but I'm not surprised. 
Campbell was acquitted on obscenity charges, but found that all the controversy surrounding Two Live Crew had an effect Florida officials didn't anticipate. It took us to a whole nother level as a group. On one end, we became household names, but on the other end, it became bigger than Two Live Crew. This is gangster rap. It is raw, in-your-face music that reflects violence, drug use. In the end, neither warning labels nor legal challenges dulled music's provocative edges, despite occasional flare-ups in the press. Hip-hop, is it art or is it poison? Today, the parental advisory label is less controversial but also less relevant. The difference now, of course, is that the way that we buy music and share music is so completely different. Sociologist Karen Sternheimer studies popular culture. She says neither comic books in the 1950s nor rock music in the 1980s had the impact on children that critics claimed. It's really difficult to think about the complexities of what actually causes things that we consider to be social problems. So it's easier and, and much more visible to say, oh, well, these movies right now, or there's video games, or there's music that's really graphically sexual. In the ensuing years, the debate surrounding warning labels died down. But in 2014, a new kind of warning label hit the headlines. And this time, it wasn't parents asking for them. Some students are calling on professors to implement what are known as trigger warnings, labels used to flag course materials deemed violent or sexually explicit. A trigger warning or a content warning kind of warns the person that, hey, this is coming up. You're going to deal with some tricky stuff. Make sure you're ready for it. Bailey Loverin sponsored a student resolution at the University of California, Santa Barbara calling for trigger warnings on course syllabi to alert students who have had a traumatic experience like sexual abuse. Growing up in a society that has all these warnings already, it's not necessarily an irrational proposal. Students on several college campuses supported trigger warnings, but some feared they could limit exposure to ideas. There's such a sort of moral fervor to protecting people from potential emotional harm, it's taking on this edge that I actually think is preventing people from talking to each other. And in the years since then, students on college campuses have shouted down speakers who were discussing ideas they didn't agree with even here at a debate. Wow. Recent events on college campuses are prompting Thanks. questions about free speech. Is free speech dead on campus? Um, no. We are right now enacting our right to free speech. You can't debate intolerance. If someone wants to inflict harm on you, are you going to debate them inflicting harm on you? No. The concept that someone somewhere is going to say that there is some content that's harmful, it really raises the question of how do we know, how do we define harm? And that's really the same core concern that moral crusaders have about popular culture. For one of the staunchest advocates of warning labels as a way to prevent potential harm, it remains a question of who gets to decide. I don't think labeling is a bad thing. But for curriculum and things, I don't know that the kids uh, get to call the shots.
watching those videos with us, I think, uh, I don't know if you could all hear it online, but some of those were, were particularly amusing here in the room, some of the, the videos. I think we remember many of these controversies. Many of us were there living through different pieces of it, whether that was as students on campus when these conversations were coming up or as we were growing up and some of the conversations around rock music and art. These are living controversies. And what I think is beautiful about uh, both of these films is they speak to the way in which these concerns arise from all across the ideological spectrum. It is consistently the case that when it comes to things like speech and offense and art and religion, these are challenging topics that consistently come up. I can't tell you what it will be next, but we can reasonably anticipate that this is not something going away. It won't be something that ends in your classroom. So very excited that we got to see those. Uh, I can't uh, emphasize enough how strongly I would encourage you to think about the application of those videos in your classroom, as well as the uh, lesson plans and resources that Dave will be sharing later about how you can do so more effectively. It's my pleasure next to be able to introduce my colleague here at the Cato Institute, John Samples. We're offering some marks more broadly on free speech, on civil discourse, on art, and some of these challenging topics. John Samples is a vice president here at the Cato Institute, where he founded and directs Cato Center for Representative Government, which studies the First Amendment, government institutional failure, and public opinion. Samples also serves on the Oversight Board, which is the organization that works with uh, Meta on Facebook and Instagram and reviewing claims about what is uh, permissible, what is not, and how do they make those measure of decisions, uh, including also being a longtime scholar of free speech issues. John's a fantastic academic and scholar in his own right. We're pleased to have him here today to offer some remarks on the films and these issues more broadly. Please join me in welcoming John to the stage. Thank you, Alan. And again, I want to repeat the... Uh, earlier uh, idea of thanks for everyone coming out today and thanks for everyone online. I was struck by watching particularly this last film, uh, last video, about a couple of things, one of which is sort of a background here with, to all of this, which is really I think a lot of people with free speech and other issues are concerned about the capacity for human irrationality. That is, to what extent and how hard is it to have what you could call a panic or a, a mass hysteria take place in which uh, people become convinced in a very for short time that there's some great danger posed to them, to their identity, to their lives, right? And uh, that leads to uh, limits on freedom of speech and also it's a, it's a problem for... Uh, uh, civil liberties in general. And so that's one reason, for example, wars themselves are really difficult times for freedom of speech and civil liberties. Uh, the second thing that I noticed was from my meta experience, there was a lot of debate here, particularly in the last video, about labels. The thing at meta, and remember meta claims over 200 million Americans use Facebook, for example. So it's a, it's a significant public square. Uh, labeling and what you could call trigger warnings uh, are the least restrictive means, apart from just leaving stuff on the platform, that they use to do what they call content moderation. That is, the regulation, restrictions, uh, really the curating of speech online. Now, 
for Facebook and other private companies, it's a very different set of issues in many respects, right? Uh, in the sense that um, they are not governed by the First Amendment. At least we don't think they are. And they will find out more from the Supreme Court in the next year or two. But these, these ways that we talked about here that were so controversial, particularly I was thinking about the one in McAllister College where the, the screen was brought down. You know, uh, Meta does that every day, probably millions of times every day. And the reason it's considered acceptable is it's slightly different than the, the McAllister case, which is it's very easy to get through a screen. And actually, you can see it, too. It's not the controversial case of religion. Often, a screen is on the other side of a screen is going to be a dead body, right? Because, as it turns out, people uh, in, in war zones uh, use Facebook. So, but that's a, a different case. Here we're dealing, in every case, with something like um, government is involved. So I want to talk real quick about it. Then there's a, many, many issues in all of these, and these videos do a wonderful job of raising these issues. I want to touch on them without going into too much depth. The first thing I want to talk about is uh, a somewhat unexpected thing, which is in both of these cases, the speech or the expression, now we call it, uh, that would, is involved involves art. Now, it may have a political edge to it, but it's not explicitly political, right? You can imagine rock music that has a political edge, but the things that were complained about were not uh, arguments about overthrowing the government or anything like that. The odd thing is that art as a protected form of expression is a relatively recent phenomenon, even among those who uh, argue for freedom of speech. I would say in the United States, if you think back about, say, as far back as the colonial government, Peter, the famous trial of Peter Zenger, who was a newspaper man, is about, he did criticism of a colonial government, very political speech. In the United States, uh, in the first Constitution, after 1791, when you have a First Amendment, uh, it's really very much about politics and about government and so on. And uh, despite how many changes you have, and you really can think of the New Deal, uh, the 1930s, the Great Depression era, World War II, as a, a really thing, a lot of changes in American government, a lot less constitutional limits on economic regulation, but sustaining very strong limitations on freedom of speech. Why? Well, what people said at that period, Supreme Court justices said, was you don't want to, regul economic regulation should be a political matter. However, you've got to make sure there can be free speech so majorities and new majorities can form, right? And then they can decide what kind of economic regulation is desired or what kind of regulation of business. In other words, Democracy needs free speech to make good politics, and it shouldn't be constrained by government. It should be constrained by good, open debate that leads to better policies. So there's a progressive idea in that. But none of that is about art, right? None of that is about art. The great Supreme Court cases of the 1920s are not about art. They're about people among other things, uh, calling for resistance to the draft, very political decisions. 
However, it is fair to say that it's certainly true that, the, as you can see now from these videos, that it is not just politics, but the First Amendment concerns art also. And I want to go into some of the reasons why that would be true. In free speech matters, and in general, a good starting point, and I think a good starting point for your students, uh, depending on how what you think is, John Stuart Mill's, what he called the very simple principle, which turns out to be very complex, but it, I think is a great starting point, that is John Stuart Mill's harm principle. It's basically this. Mill asked the question, what is the best reason or what is the reason you have to have to limit liberty, like liberty of, of uh, expression, like making art? What's the principle? And he came up with the harm principle. The harm principle is you can limit someone's liberty if they do harm to others. Right? And we saw this in the last video. The sociologist was very, very much starting out from a John Stuart Mill point of view, the harm principle. You've got to talk about harm. But Mill also talks about harm to others, and that's an important distinction. What I, I think this means is that you can limit people's you cannot limit, limit people's liberty because they harm themselves. Right? So when people mentioned in the videos, well, adults should be able to buy what they want and see what they want, right? This is the Mills uh, principle. Adults are in a position to make those decisions. And, you know, I come across this a lot in uh, Meta. Where do I, I ask myself, why is it that this uh, speech should be taken down, right? Don't, isn't there something important about respecting people, respecting their judgment? Someone may want that information, may be able to use that information in their lives. Then that's sort of the core of it, right? Adults should be able to make their own decisions because they're capable of it. Mill added a lot to that, which he, and I think that is, and we see this to some degree, certainly in the Serrano part, that if you had this kind of protection, for speech or this kind of liberty, that it would lead to progress. There would be criticisms of the status quo. It would be permitted. People would listen to it, debate it, and you would, could improve your political world, right? So that's progress. So he thought that freedom of speech was tied to progress ultimately. Um, but there's this question of the harm. And uh, the other thing I would say about the harm principle, it's, a, it's part of the American system, the broad system of norms, but also the Constitution. Notice that what Mill focuses on is not on what government should do, but what it shouldn't do. It should leave people at liberty unless it has a strong case of harm to others. The United States Constitution in its text if I had to say one thing about it, is that that is the principle it embodies. It's about limiting government actions, not about empowering government. And that's going to be important in a minute, uh, in a second. But the big question here, of course, that Mill leaves open is uh, what, what counts as harm? And by the way, the idea of protecting people uh, from themselves that is, 
you're prevented from doing something because you might hurt yourself is uh, an idea of paternalism, the idea of your, the government acting as a parent. That brings us back to all of you, though, because in a sense, you're secondary or replacement parents in a way, depending. We'll have to return to that in a second. So, but then the question is, what is harm itself? What is harm to others? Um, and in some sense, the American system uh, embraces this ambiguity because the one clear case in the United States uh, constitutional law that's harm is incitement to violence. If you're right there and you tell somebody to hit somebody or you foment a riot, for example, the har there's harm to others. You've caused people to be violent toward one another, right? That's a clear-cut case. It's a hard case to make in the United States. And you might have noticed that in the, the discussions about January 6th a couple of years ago, there have been no indictments of certain political leaders about incitement. It's a hard case to make that violence is caused by speech. Um, but there's another category that's also not protected, presumably because of the harm it does, which is obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. Now, you may find this a little surprising if you live in the contemporary United States, but it is also true. That is, uh, if something is obscene, it the idea is it has no value, really, uh, it can be banned. However, there, there is a problem of deciding what is obscene, and generally speaking, that uh, attempt to define that has been abandoned. So the category of obscenity, and part of it is because is obscenity harmful or not, right? Is one man's uh, art another man's obscenity? Supreme Court justice said that. Uh, so we can't decide what it is, and so you leave it to the individual. One of the things about, the again, the American constitutional order is the idea that uh, if you don't know what the answer is to something, you leave it to the individual. You can see that through a lot of different things, and obscenity is part of that. Now, let's go to Serrano and his, uh, his artwork. There's a couple of issues here. Um, one is the one Dick Armey talks about, and which would probably be more persuasive if it wasn't, did also pre present it with denunciations of the art. That is the principle I just mentioned. Um, what do you do if government is not limiting expression, but rather supporting it, making more of it, right? Uh, so in other words, if you're, spend, if you're subsidizing artists through the NEA, you're not preventing art from being made, you're supporting it so that it will be made. Um, now, one argument is that that's not part, there is no requirement in the Constitution for that to be done. It is a decision that can be made by the, leg, by the legislature, right? But it's, uh, there is a more general argument, too, that maybe government shouldn't be in the, in the process of doing that or in the business of subsidizing any kind of speech. Now, that's not the American system. United States, for example, the Supreme Court has ruled that the government can subsidize, use taxpayer uh, money to finance candidates for election. It's called uh, 
public financing of campaigns. They don't, but at the same time, the government doesn't have to do that. And the same is true of arts funding. The argument for against it would be the one that's made in the video that sort of gets obscured. Uh, we tend to think of these people, and they don't always present themselves very persuasively perhaps, as, as being sort of bad people that are doing bad things. But notice the argument they're making. They're saying that majority taste should determine spending, expenditures. Generally speaking, within constraints, that's what we, that is the system of democracy. It has some kind of majority rule. Uh, and in this case, the idea of obscenity is somewhat uh, uh, tied up in all of that. Now, the odd thing about it, as you saw in the video, was uh, the Supreme Court rules that in the Serrano case and in some others is that there's no requirement for spending the money. And in the, so in this case, there is no uh, First Amendment violation. I think the real question, though, that goes maybe somewhat deeper and may be a part of us, for us in the future, is if the government makes it, there's no requirement that there be arts funding. But if they do start making arts funding, why should, you know, can, are, can they discriminate? Can they discriminate between uh, art that offends majority taste or offends a majority of people represented by the House of Representatives and the Senate, which is what we're really talking about, and a president? Or does that constitute a First Amendment violation or more, perhaps more likely some kind of uh, discrimination under maybe the 14th Amendment in the state? So there's a, an open issue there. What's a beyond doubt, I think, is that if this weren't a positive act by government, the NEA weren't involved, that there would be no case at all that could be made under freedom of expression, the First Amendment, for suppressing in any way uh, uh, Serrano's work, right? It's the curiosity of the spending that causes the, the problem uh, or complicates the problem. And that's because, again, back to the McAllister College case, Serrano and others, and all of us, are free to offend others. There is no right in the Constitution to be free of offense, right? And you can think about of a lot of cases uh, where, if you do, that weren't true, how many, you would have a pretty active government. But... This points back to the Mill principle. He says no harm to others, right? That's, you have to have harm to others to be able to limit liberty. But think about it for a minute. Did Serrano do harm to others? Yeah, of course he did. It, he made them feel bad. He made them upset. He did whatever. And think about the McAllister case. Did the Muslim students, some of them seeing that, were they done, was there harm to them? Well, in a certain sense, yes, they were offended. So it's not just a question of harms, but also a question of what kind of harms. Part of the answer is consider the incitement issue. I have a right to life, liberty, and property, let's say, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you incite someone to attack me, you threaten my life. I have a certain kind of vital interest in being free of violence. So that's a clear-cut case. Other kinds of rights 
aren't recognized. I don't have a right to be free of the harm called offense. Because it makes it, and you can think about why that should be so, right? Um, and by the way, I would note there's an interesting case in the meta case I was, the meta examples I was talking about earlier. When you think about why does meta worry about screens and offense and things like that, the answer has to be not that, uh, well, you know, they're, they, they are, have thought about First Amendment doctrine and so on. The reason they do this is because they're worried about whether people will stay on the platform. Because they, remember the famous case where Mark Zuckerberg was asked, what does Facebook do? And he said, Senator, we sell ads. If there's nobody to sell ads to or a lot fewer people to sell ads to, that's a problem for his shareholders, of which he is by far the, the largest one, right? So you can get to a lot of these things uh, in a different way. You can get to it through a business relationship. Now, let's go to moms against, uh, basically, moms for labeling, which, as I said, we, we do accept in a private context. Um, this is an interesting question because in the American, uh, going back in American history to the beginning, it was not clear from the start that, it was clear that freedom of speech was important, but did freedom of speech mean just that you, government could not prevent people from speaking, right, before they spoke? Or did it mean the government could also not punish them for speaking? Now, there is a credible argument that actually the British tradition of seditious, what's called seditious libel, which is the idea that people can speak, government can't uh, stop them from speaking, but if they, for example, um, advocate overthrow of the government, that causes a lot of harms and they can be punished for it. Now, now there is no doubt that government, apart from these circumstances where there's clear harm, like incitement to violence, the government can't do that. It's called chilling speech. Government can do things that causes people, that increases the price of speaking, and you get less of it. So one of those might be, um, and, and it's hard to say from this video how serious the labeling threat was, right? But you can imagine the labeling threat would be that, um, you know, people, well, people who were buying the albums uh, when that happened, when people still bought albums, and I guess they still do, People who did it, were, it wasn't that adults were going to look at the label and say, wow, I don't want any of that uh, obscene stuff in my record collection. Uh, instead, their parents were going to see that. It was information for parents, and then the parents would um, prevent them from buying it, right? But that is a way of, it does two things, really. It chills the speech, deprives an audience for the artist, but also it deprives the uh, person who wanted to hear the music because there's certain rights to uh, listeners, right? To people who read stuff, to people who listen to stuff. They do have a kind of right. And that's, now this, and I'll finish on this point, um, but the issue here is paternalism, isn't it? And I think you will be, I don't know who you teach and how old they are, but you'll see the part of paternalism. A teacher is paternalistic. It goes with the system, right, to some degree. 
Ideally, paternalism is in service to creating adults that can make reasonably good decisions and diverse decisions, because many ways of living are going to be different, but still. So is there, a, there is the question in uh, free speech constitutionalism is, what do the rights of people who, live, who are under 18 years of old, how much free speech rights do they have? And the answer, I should say, generally, is that they probably have pretty strong First Amendment rights, that government can't do that, can't do much to them. Does it include prevention of labeling? Maybe. What about a 12-year-old? Well, there's these questions. There's clearly a developmental thing um, in all of this. And I will finish with saying, you know, it occurred to me, thinking about this, and this may... Uh, teachers in the past have mentioned this to me, so I'll mention it. So this guy named John Haidt, who's very concerned about the effects of phones and the internet on the uh, mental health of teenagers, has recently proposed that uh, schools nationally be able to essentially uh, separate students and their phones during the school day. And you can see this as maybe a beginning point to try to prevent uh, uh, or to help on the mental health front from John's point of view. Um, but actually, when you think about it, and, and you realize that, well, in First Amendment stuff, there's actually the means to communicate is actually important, too, that it might, that kind of uh, forcing kids to put their phones in the locker uh, might well be, violate their First Amendment rights. Because what they're doing on the phone, I guess, is God knows what, but probably, <laughs> I don't know, you'll, maybe you'll tell me. Uh, they're communicating with others. And so you can see uh, how this goes. The Moms Against Rock was along those lines, I think. That's the argument against it was that labeling was, uh, I mean, Zappa's argument is it's the first step and so on and so forth uh, about that. Uh, it is... We have a long history in the United States of popular culture and this. The other part that's not mentioned but is important, I think, I don't, it's not an oversight, uh, is films, right? So I would encourage you as a, I, not, not encourage, I guess I would, I don't know if I would encourage your students or not. Uh, 1936, you get something called the Hayes Code, which is, uh, stop all that stuff on those films. I suggest it's very possible, and you can buy them or you can watch it on television, watch pre-code films. I'm still having problems trying to figure out why would they, you know, the woman who messes up always at the final, at the end of it, she gets killed or she decides she made a big mistake, right? I thought that's what they were worried about, that bad people got away with stuff. They never get away with stuff in the pre-code stuff, as far as I could see. But you don't get government censorship. You get voluntary, voluntary agreements. The Hayes Code was to avoid government action. And notice also, we, I think we still live today with films that have ratings to them. There was certainly a rating system for much, much of the time. Um, and again, that was voluntary. So the moment, one of the questions, uh, really uh, may be hard for the classroom, but one of the questions is, in what sense is meta has a voluntary set of limits on speech, right? 
the film companies had those limits. To what extent are those voluntary? To what extent do they reflect government action? To what extent do, are they responses to what I talked about right at the first, which is the human capacity for mass irrationality and a fear of where that might lead, right? And I think that's an open question, actually, and one that's one of the hardest ones here. So with that, I'll stop talking. But do watch those pre-code films. They're actually, the other thing I would say is I think they're better films than uh, when people, and that's a pretty liberal thing to say in the sense these ideas of freedom of speech are liberal. And you would expect without these kinds of constraints that the artist would do what they, their vision, right? Uh, and, and some of it's just bad, but I think in general. <laughs> There's always going to be a market for bad stuff. But um, I think in general, letting the art, there is this trust here, you know? Letting the artists do what they want is going to give you, in general, the best result. And I think that's probably true in that case. So, you want? Oh. Yeah. yeah, okay. Oh. <laughs> John, Joe, thank you both so much for the conversation so far. What we wanted to do is move to the Q&A portion of the event. Uh, so if you're here in person, just raise your hand. One of my colleagues will run to you with a microphone. If you're online, please do submit those there. Uh, so any questions for John or Joe about what they covered, the films, or any related topics so far? We'll start with a, a question here in the room while I figure out how to get back online on this tablet. <laughs> No one thought they were going to get rid of the phones I mean, <laughs> without violating the Constitution? Uh, largely because I want to talk about drag queens. That this, as a piece of performance art, is suddenly being attacked by people in certain states. And do you think that there's a valid First Amendment argument to protect drag as performance within those states? So, I mean, the question would be, uh, there's a couple questions. Uh, within states, that means the most likely uh, source of uh, uh, protection would be uh, the First Amendment across the board. Um, for many, a long time, at least uh, giving you an idea, almost all of my life, it, it, it's been the case that uh, uh, the protections went beyond speech itself. Uh, that expression, uh, more broadly, was about symbolic speech or, uh, say, wear, if you can wear a um, sort of black armband to protest the war, can you wear drag in a, uh, an event? Uh, I suspect, and since the, there will be a great deal of... Uh, testimony in such a uh, trial that the uh, drag is a form of expression that the the people understand it that way, the plaintiffs they would be, that uh, I think it would be protected, yeah. So we have a great question online for uh, Joe. This comes from Brian Ayers. He writes, teachers, he's in Florida, grapple with an increasingly outspoken parental rights movement. Does Retro Report fear backlash for even producing this well-done film? And what's your message to these kinds of groups who might seek to ban such films 
like has happened with books in the classroom? Well, I don't, I don't, I'll start by saying I don't want to speak for all of Retroport because um, I, I just, I never know what I'm going to say until it just comes out. But, um, but I would say that no, in, in general, I don't, as a, as a producer at Retroport, fear um, such a backlash. Uh, Dave, uh, our education director, might have opinions on that, and if I sense such a backlash uh, coming, I would frantically email him and ask him to take care of it. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that would entail. I don't think we fear it. Um, I mean, if, the, if there's any uh, uh, upshot to, I think, the two of our films there, it's that uh, uh, attention on these issues and attentions, uh, attention on the artists and the, um, the creators who make work that draw such backlash only end up uh, creating more uh, publicity and attention for them. So, I mean, speaking as a, as, a, as a producer and filmmaker, I would, some part of me would be excited, I think, possibly. Maybe that's the wrong thing to say. I don't know. Yeah. I think I would, I would find it thrilling. That was in the, yeah. the Serrano uh, video. It was, it's called the Streisand effect, generally speaking, uh, although we could call it the Serrano effect because he noted, you know, this really made my career go really <laughs> well. Um, Barbara Streisand did something that brought attention to the, a person, and then the person got a lot more attention than they would otherwise. Uh, so the other thing I would say about all of this, about a backlash, did you notice during the film about uh, rock music that the people who were on the side of uh, critici criticizing this and calling for labeling, all, even including the members of Congress, said, I wish we could legislate about this. I wish you know, our Congress is not thinking about that. They seem to be not thinking about labeling it any more than that. Um, and which, after all, if you look at, they could argue, uh, look at the back of a piece of cheese. It has the calories on it. It's disclosure. It's, nobody's being stopped. Now, and also, high-calorie foods don't seem to be stopped by having the, the calories <laughs> disclosed. Uh, I think there's something inside I would like to think that this whole element of irrational mass hysteria is also constrained by people who look and say, no, that's not the way to do it. it might, there might be backlash against our cause, or uh, we just don't do that. We can't get it through the courts. There's a librarian that I was working with over the last year who said something very similar, and she said, uh, the best thing that can happen to a book is to be challenged, to be threatened, to be removed from schools or classrooms, because then I know kids are going to come into the library. <laughs> then they're going to come in and they're going to be interested about books. And that was a very fascinating observation. Uh, what other questions do we have from folks here in the room? Let's go up here to Kevin. In regards to being a documentary filmmaker, how hard is it to get access to all the different angles of a story? Because many times it seems like those who are the ones challenging are the least likely to want to talk in public about it or on, on, on tape for it. Sometimes that does. That's a good point. Sometimes that does happen. Um, I found that in, in, in every case that I've tried, someone will in the end talk. Uh, often, if, if, if you're trying to interview someone who's at the center of a controversy that's very much alive, the thing that you have to do with them is establish a kind of personal credibility and trust. And that takes time. It's like any relationship that one might have with any person. Um, what it requires is, is, is for you to spend time with that person, uh, make them or help them understand uh, that your interest is simply in telling the story honestly 
um, and allowing them to express their perspective. You're not trying to, uh, there, it's not like a, an interview with gotcha questions. Um, it's about, as I said, establishing that credibility with that person. And then also um, uh, uh, point to the work that you've already done to show that you've been able to uh, cover controversies and interview people who are at the center of those controversies and at least show that you can make everyone that you interview feel like you've adequately represented their side in a way that they feel is correct, that they don't feel like they've been misrepresented. Uh, that's the, the aim, I think, of any, of any journalist, is always to try to make sure that everyone that they interview feels in the end that they haven't been uh, misrepresented, which is the worst feeling. I mean, to feel misrepresented is, is, is in some sense, a, a feeling of betrayal, and it makes people distrust the press. So that, that's, that's the thing. And, and if you spend the time with a, with a person, with a potential source, and, and, and help them know your intentions and help them know what kind of journalist you are, then it usually works out. So uh, question next for John. Uh, I want to read this question from Sue Eikenberry, who's joining us online, but then also expand it a little bit more broadly. So Sue asks, as a history teacher, I run into the question of what to do about racial terms and epithets that are in primary sources that I think students would benefit from engaging or reading but don't meet today's standards. She mentions, of course, things like the N-word and other similar issues. Uh, how do we think about that? And then where I want to build off of that even a little bit further is thinking about moving from the question of the legal, right? So, so often the application of the First Amendment or government action in these questions to the broader question of the moral or the normative characteristic of engaging in certain speech activities or speech restrictions, right? So how do we think about, as these cultural shifts happen, how do we engage with historical artifacts from a different time, but then more broadly, both for you, John, and for you, Joe, how do we think broadly about cultural shifts and how that impacts thinking about speech concerns? So free speech advocates, uh, when you raise issues like this and others, uh, you're going to hear, and you're about to hear it from me too, uh, the terms more speech. And let me give you a specific example of uh, that uh, recently I've experienced. Uh, if you do watch, as I sometimes do, movies from the 1930s, you see... Um, things that are done that would end the career of the actor today. That wouldn't be done, in other words. Um, and the most important thing, I think, is when you see that is to, there's two things. One is to recognize the, crin, what's called cringy, it's cringy to you, <laughs> what they're doing. It's a kind of a feeling of disgust, which is sometimes combined with, well, uh, the culture was different then. But the other thing is, and I was viewing this uh, the other night, there's uh, maybe many online sources where you can talk about these films. And I was reading about a film that I'd seen, and someone, you give it four to five, one to five stars, and someone gave it this particular film where Edward G. Robinson did something uh, quite unacceptable several times. Um, the person reviewing it made a point of it and said, you know, Edward G. Robinson was a good actor otherwise, but he does a lot of things that are really cringy in this film. And he downmarked the film for it, I think, probably. But he gave voice to it, right? 
The alternative would be, and you know, the alternative here is uh, less troubling than many times. The alternative would be uh, Turner Classic Movies would just say, we don't want to show that. Meta doesn't want to have that kind of stuff on the, you know, racial epitaphs on the platform. So we don't have it. We can. Turner Classic Movies doesn't have to show that movie. They do. But when they do, it's important that there be speech about it that says, God, what the hell, <laughs> right? Uh, and it, uh, to look back into another world, and well, I think uh, actually probably a worthwhile one, right? Insofar as it doesn't foster those views now, and the way to stop that is there be speech about it. What you could do as the teacher is an authority figure, I would say, if you do that. Is the Turner Classic Movies policy at all controversial with its audience that you know of? Um, it's interesting because the, um, I suspect it, I haven't seen any mm -hmm. uh, in terms of showing the films that have objectionable material in them. Uh, I have not seen that, uh, any controversy about it. I suspect also, though, that there were probably worse things about it. And also, you, you know, the, um, I would say uh, there's two sides to these things in the following sense, particularly in the 1930s movie, the treatment of African-American actors is mostly terrible, right? But also, you, you see them there, and if you didn't show the film, you, what you see is like, that guy's really talented, and wonder how many more African-Americans who were almost as talented didn't get a job, right? And it's, there's sort of the mixed thing of the, of the two things. If you, if you don't show the film, period, you don't understand uh, one's, the important side, really, of it, I think. Uh, but again, I would say there has to be like, and there's an adequate number of discussions, I, I think, about, you know, or should be more, about um, all of the issues. Why weren't there more people like uh, these, these actors that were so good? The, the way that the question has ever, I'm just trying to think of when that question has ever intersected with my own work, I'm, I'm only reminded of, I, as I mentioned earlier, I did a, a short film on uh, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, and we, we include in the archival section at the beginning of that film, uh, 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 I think 20th Century Fox made it in 1946. It's a movie called um, um, Little Tokyo USA that is basically a, a propaganda film uh, detailing the ways in which Japanese Americans, you know, allegedly at the time on the West Coast were communicating with Japan and with Tokyo. And we use a little, a small scene where these two boys are, are fighting, one of whom is Japanese, one of whom is a, is, a, is a white young man. They're fighting and the detective, the main character, shows up and says, hey, break it up, fellas, break it up. And, uh, um, and he asks them, what are you fighting about? And, and the, the young Japanese boy says, uh, uh, he called me a name, and it's just because my father uh, talks to Tokyo every night on the radio. So, so the instance in which I've used this in my work is actually as an example of how the ideology of the time um, was so pro-war that it, that it allowed for uh, the, the mainstreaming of, of completely false allegations against Japanese Americans. Of course, there were no Japanese Americans talking with 
with Tokyo or, or allies to the enemy, and yet and yet the the culture um, uh, collaborated with a with a with a program of the internment of these people. No, and but again, if you there's always with speech issues, there's always the danger of being overbroad, mm -hmm. right? And so, if even a private actor, like Turner Classic Movies or any channel, uh, doesn't show up, just stays out of the issue. Uh, you, you ever seen the film uh, Bad Day at Black Rock? It's a powerful indictment uh, starring Spencer Tracy's po powerful indictment of uh, what can happen when there's that kind of ethnic prejudice and it, that grows out of war and so on. And it's, the I think, the 1940s. Mm. It, was a, it was very surprising to come out of uh, so if you stay away from the issue, you get the, you miss the good signs mm. too. And the important thing is that people learn the lessons from it. And they also it's also important that they not suspect that things are being censored because they should be, right? That there's something that is being hidden from us, mm. right? That, uh, that it's true, but it's being hidden because it's true. That's one of the problems of censorship. Um, Ultimately, free speech for your students and for all of us depends on the fact that people can deal with controversial ideas and can reach the right conclusions about it, ultimately. It takes a while sometimes, but that's the idea. Morning. My question is for, for you, John. Um, so I find that students sometimes have a hard time grappling with the difference between freedom of speech and freedom from consequences. Um, so frequently, you know, remarks in the hallway, et cetera. Well, I, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, I shouldn't get in trouble for that. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could speak to the, just kind of the difficulty with that um, as far as, again, difference between having freedom of speech versus no consequences ever happening because of that speech. Right, and I, again, this goes to the question I mentioned at the end, which I'm actually more ambivalent about than I probably should be, uh, which is the question of the role, a student in a classroom at what age is doing what, right? So surely there is a paternalistic role for teachers at some point, and, sh and I suspect the other commonsensical thing would be to say, over time that you know, roughly speaking, an adult pops out at the other end, out of high school. Uh, so, and then there's the, the questions of basic, that, that sometimes are in the public sphere are less noted, of, of order and how uh, maintaining basic order in the classroom. I'm wondering, I'm sort of imagining the circumstances that you're trying, the actual concrete circumstances. Uh, but that's a, a value that's also, but, you know, I think we talked about art and, uh, and politics. You know, I think it's one thing if it's 1968 and the students are wearing black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. And another thing if they're just, they've learned a little bit about free speech and they're just uh, using it to be a whatever you, Want to, however you want to define them. Uh, and that's a judgment that teaches some flexibility there. 
Uh, but there's clearly there is some, there needs to be some thing. Freedom from consequences, what kind of consequences, I would say, there's, uh, and the nature of the speech. And probably a lot of this is somewhat commonsensical, but um, if you have litigious students, it might not be. So I can't give you a clear answer. I think probably all of you solve these questions, right? Uh, Maybe, as you go through it, and maybe the students, even however age, can recognize someone's being a jerk as opposed to someone raising uh, a real issue. And I think the real issues probably come late after 50, age 15 or something. I don't know. That's, I haven't taught uh, uh, teenagers. I mean, college students were hard enough, although they didn't do that very much. Well, I, I just think of what it would be like to be growing up today and going to high school today and, and having the entire debate in the media around free speech be around the notion of cancel culture, as I said earlier, on both sides. And it w I think it would be confusing to me, and I think I would have the same problem where I wouldn't necessarily be able to draw a clear distinction between the idea that we live in, in a society that's supposed to allow for everyone to express themselves within the bounds of, of the harm principle um, uh, to, to square that with, with this idea that we live in a society where uh, if you say the wrong thing, you might be driven out of the, of the of respectable public discourse, basically, which is always the threat that's looming in, in the media. Often these headlines show up, you know, this or that person driven out. And so it would be, it would be hard for me as a kid, I think, to, to square those things and to understand everyone has the right to say much of anything, but you don't necessarily have the right to be liked by everyone all the time or have people say nice things about you on Twitter or Facebook or Meta. There's also, I think it just occurred to me, I don't know if uh, this is the example you had in mind. I mean, I think there are, with all of these things, in public we have very broad free speech rights in a specialty thing like a school special forum, I would say. Um, Again, some of the comments, there's a difference between a student just uttering a racial epitaph, which might be uh, school policy, might uh, have punishment for that, right? And a student making even a reasonable uh, or somewhat reasonable uh, st statement about a public policy issue. Um, this was debated in the 1980s, uh, campus codes and things like that. One of the endpoints of the debates about people who were favorite uh, some restraints by universities was that you know, racial epitaphs were different in that they were emotional outbursts. They had no cognitive content, really. But that didn't go anywhere. Uh, that, that's not American uh, free speech policy. But again, to the extent that teachers or principals or other administrators have some um, flexibility, there might be room for that kind of distinction. Plus, there's the whole problem of th that distinction might fit very well, because part of the points of school is to make a multiracial society possible, right? And that's Maybe that uh, the more speech will be the way to deal with racial epitaphs, and maybe not and for 15-year-olds or 10-year-olds or something. 
think it's a complicated matter. A lot of these issues aren't uh, when they involve adults, in my view. But as I said, the, I'm not sure the Supreme Court justices would agree with me about these things, that schools could do that sort of thing, depending on, I, I don't know of any cases. So I've got a, a couple of questions online that I think both great for Joe, talk a little bit about uh, the filmmaking process and some of the ways uh, that you look to engage in it. So Summer asked for us, I love the idea of using the interior of Serrano's house as a cinematic reveal. Right. To what extent do you think of reveals when trying to keep students' attentions in your films? So that's the first question. Uh, followed up by a question from uh, Lois who asks, can Joe give uh, teachers a look into the future of what Retro Report is producing or releasing in 2024? That is... Oh. Where, where can we be excited about what's coming next? Um, well, to, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first one first. Um, I do think about reveals as a way to, to keep anyone's attention. Um, when we started the, the education initiative, I was thinking, well, how is this going to affect the way I make films? And, and frankly, it hasn't that much. I think that to keep anyone's attention is the same as to keep a high schooler's attention. It's, it's, it's just good storytelling. You have to move a story quickly. Um, you have to respect the, the the patience and attention of the audience, um, and and I'm so glad that the viewer noticed that that reveal as being important to the to the film. I mean, you know, I, I come from I come to film from print, and uh, it, it it took a while for me to understand just how important image and sound are to making a film that sounds absolutely ridiculous. I must have been so stupid not to have realized that earlier. But um, but I but what you need to do is to make the the thing look interesting, <laughs> and people notice interesting things. And as as I said earlier, when I saw that apartment, I realized that that so much of the story is of course visual; it's about art, and I needed to use that in the narrative itself uh, to propel it forward. So I do think about that. Excuse me, and I I do think about um, um, what 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 will keep a, a high school students um, interest in what they are interested in. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's nice actually to hear fr feedback from teachers about what they need um, and to try to make it interesting. I'm, I, I can say, I think I can say what, what I'm working on right now. Um, I'm working on a couple uh, short films about um, uh, President Nixon's trip to, to China and the opening to China, um, and as well as on Tiananmen Square and its effect on, on the U.S.'s relationship with China. That's one thing. And then um, I'm working with a, a group of other producers on a larger project. I don't know how much I can say about it necessarily. It, it, it will respond to or look at some of the tensions on campuses, college campuses, as a result of the, the, the war in Gaza and the attack on Israel. Um, so that's, that's what I've been spending a lot of time on uh, now. So I thought uh, from a teaching perspective, this is my guess, you're the experts, but the Serrano piece and showing everything, it should raise, it's a teaching moment, and the moment is, are you sure you know what this person was trying to convey with this? Because, and maybe Jesse Helms or some other else running for office on any issue across the spectrum, maybe they're not the best person to talk about the meaning of the art or what this person's trying to do. Or someone who, you know, has reasons to take a position for uh, business reasons, right? They might make money from that. Maybe you need to decide about it. And that's why you have free speech is the idea that you have a right to see this and make up your own mind. 
right? And maybe if you do that, you'll say, well, Serrano may have been like kind of a religious guy, but that's not what I was told, right? It helps, I mean, it helped to, to learn that about him, I think helps uh, a potential viewer of, of the art itself understand that there might be rival interpretations than the one that you heard about on, in, in the news. Um, of course, the other question is, does intent ever even matter? If someone is offended, isn't it just the right of the person to say, I'm offended, I don't care what you meant by it, uh, I, f I find it abhorrent and I don't want to see it or be made to see it, see it or be made to, to pay for it in any way? And that's a very good point because to the extent we live online going forward, it's become pretty clear to me that it, although Facebook and Meta talks a lot about determining intent, intent of speech or expression online, it's very difficult often to determine what someone was trying to convey by something. Or even the context. Or even the context. So, so does context even matter now in our utterances? Um, I mean, I mean, uh, these, these, these internet platforms are in a way context-less. Everything just happens. That's the idea of the tweet initially, I thought, is that it's just happening in the air all the time, that there's no context to anything. Um, and, I mean, this happened recently at um, Facebook. The, there was a video taken of a, uh, a jail in Haiti, which uh, has nobody says anything, and there's nobody d determining, telling you, well, here's the situation, and so on. And someone says something, a, a phrase that was gone into, and that's it. The question was, without this context, was the person trying to foster more violence? Or was the person trying to convey to outsiders, this is what the way, what's going on here in Haiti. There's violence everywhere. There's lynchings. Can't we have some help in trying to with this? Well, from the context, you couldn't really tell. I couldn't tell. So this, this is a real challenge, I would say. You're right. Well, and I have a, I have a question for um, Jana. So uh, I, one of the first videos I made for Richard Report was on a, a, a then somewhat obscure law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which, is, which was, as I was making it, being talked about by then-President Trump as something that he wanted to see done away with. Um, and, and, you know, that law, correct me if I'm wrong, you could talk about it, that law is what, um, what keeps Internet platforms from being held liable for any... Uh, defamatory or otherwise illegal speech, um, and it what it, it's what initially allowed these internet platforms to grow. It allowed for things like Facebook now Meta to be created, but it's also the center of controversy around them now because it, it allows them basically to wash their hands of almost anything that is on their websites, and the extent to which they do content moderation is in fact of their own goodwill and of their own volition. Uh, you know, at Meta, do you talk about this often, the threat of Section 230 being changed, what that might mean for the company and for free speech on the Internet, and whether now that, that, that the discourse around Meta and other platforms is so often about the danger of unfettered free speech, what that will mean for the future of, of these companies? Uh, in my what I do, basically. No, we don't, because we don't uh, really focus on legislation. Now, I do think it is correct that uh, there could, it is, I think it would be a danger if it were changed. 
Remember the central idea of 230 is that, I mean, the, the uh, platforms can be held liable if they break the law, if they do it, or if they have certain kinds of speech online. But it's to separate uh, the wrongdoer from the platform so that actually the people who do something like libel somebody, they're still liable for it, the, the, the user. Uh, who's not liable is the platform. Because, and the idea is if you didn't do that, they would take no chances, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of, you would have the mentioned overbreath. You would take down a lot of speech if, they, if Facebook were responsible for the speech to avoid the legal uh, consequences, lawsuits or whatever, right? You would take that down because you take down Anything that's, uh, you would either, well, you would take down anything that's questionable. And so you would, the overbreath idea would be the, you might get the libel, the libelous speech, but you'd also get a bunch of stuff that should be heard. So that's the free speech element to it. Um, I still have this strong belief, which sometimes I wonder if it's just foolishness, is that at the end of the day, when people say something, it's one thing in politics. It's another thing when they get down to actually doing things, right? And then they would realize that, uh, you know, or President Trump would realize, or somebody from the other Democratic Party would realize, you know, this is going to be really a bad thing, or it's going to harm us. It's going to harm our... So talking is one thing and doing is another, and I think 230 will survive there uh, for adults, certainly. There may be legislation about uh, teenagers. It's very hard area to legislate in, actually, but, but, and also because of the First Amendment issues. Uh, but it, the law will be less obscure as time goes on. It is an amazing thing about uh, online speech is that a decision was made fairly early in the development of the internet what, what, you know, 12 years or so before Facebook really got going, among others, and even before Google, that made it very difficult to do any mm -hmm. legislating about it. Well, um, one of the arguments, I mean, there are many arguments that were made from the left and right against Section 230, and by extension, it really was just a, a, arguments against the nature of Internet platforms and the nature of Internet speech, and the, the one from the right had to do with the censorship of conservative voices, as, as, as they argued. The one from the left was that, there are a number from the left, but one of them was that these, uh, these companies have learned that incentivizing by their very structure outrageous or inflammatory content, which I imagine many teachers would be worried about, and that you know it's, it's, it's ultimately young people whose brains are being molded by the existence of these platforms and their, the constancy with, with which they're on them, that the, the companies benefit, profit from uh, uh, incentivizing speech that is going to be outrageous and therefore potentially defamatory or libelous or illegal in some other way, but will face no consequences other than, say, public shame uh, for actually hosting them, that there are no legal consequences for them. And there's really going to be no financial consequences because, as I, as I said, or as the argument goes, they make more money the more outrageous stuff is on. Yeah, the, the speech, this has been a, a long time. And perhaps... Um, 
unsurprisingly, the people at Meta, executives I've talked to, deny that it happens. It is a microeconomic idea, that is, that at every margin you do what you maximize, maximize people staying online. You do that by putting, uh, directing outrageous speech or some kind of speech to them. The alternative problem is that, uh, that seems to me to be the alternative is um, the people who manage something like Facebook or are also aware that they have a brand to protect. Mm that uh, if you look at, um, say, the oversight board I work on, it, its charter is based in ideas about the brand, right? Uh, and so to some degree, they're faced with the problem of um, if you let things go too much, it'll drive people off the platform or it'll wreck the brand. If you don't uh, censor, you don't do content moderation, you could do. You could harm the brand. On the other hand, you want to do free speech because it takes you out. Of, it keeps you out of the. Uh, I think they're afraid of politicians mostly, and I think also, um, in Facebook's case, Mark Zuckerberg decided that uh, that was his position that he wanted the maximum amount of free speech. So, um, I tend to doubt. I think the the modern manager of a large corporation has, doesn't really decide that way, particularly if you're going to do a great deal of, and you have to say that even as things stand, Facebook has had a lot of, uh, the brand is uh, looked upon less favorably than it was in 2015. It's been a tough thing, but they have to think about that. And, you know, and the, and the sort of slot, slippery slope to becoming HM, or some kind of non-money-making <laughs> undertaking, right? So I tend to be skeptical about those claims. Uh, also, the other thing to keep in mind uh, is a real issue for teachers, too, I think, is um, there are so many people on social media that controlling the platform is a very controlling it in an accurate way is a real challenge. So stuff happens that seems to be intentional, um, that is actually just the technology of control is not accurate. It, it's, it, uh, the companies, these guys are, you know, they're really capable people, right? Uh, but, the technology is not far from perfect. That's sort of the AI promise and all that sort of thing. So you end up um, taking down things to get at other stuff, I think, is a lot of it. It's just three, Facebook has three and a half billion people on it. They take down, they, they consider three, four million pieces of uh, content every day. And they can't do it, humans can't do it. So machines do it, machines don't know what, I mean, machines get part of it. Um, so my advice to you is never use the verb kill if you want your mm. stuff to stay up. <laughs> even, even if none of you would use it in a bad way, but don't use it in a joking way. Because as you can guess, I mean, what would you do? You're very sensitive to people talking about killing. <laughs> Talk about harms, right? Talk about your brand.
don't want people talking about killing. So that's, I think, it's an extended answer. And instead, tonight, when we post about the Packers beating the 49ers, we should talk about destroying them and beating them <laughs> into the ground instead of killing them. <laughs> besting them. Yeah, besting besting, them. besting yeah. is not a word. Uh, we've got time for one, maybe two additional questions, if they're relatively quick. Let's start over here in the front. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, these issues surrounding art and free speech seem relatively quaint in comparison to a threat that I think one particular abuse of free speech poses for our country and for societal cohesion at this moment, and that is disinformation. Aside from libel, obscenity, and incitement to violence, free speech allows for disinformation to spread, and social media has amplified its spread. So I wanted to ask you, have you done any documentary projects about this, or do you plan to? And do we need to modify our conception of free speech to deal with disinformation that's not covered by libel, obscenity, or incitement to violence. Thank you. Uh, it's a great question. I mentioned the Section 230 story. Um, the first one I did, that was a collaboration between Richard Report and Vox, and it took up that issue of, of, of disinformation and the rise of it. Um, I mean, the, the, the question that that film asks at the end is basically the question you just posed, so it's not exactly a response. I don't, I don't obviously have a response. I guess, that, I guess that's more for you. I mean, I mean I, it certainly was the argument, especially around 2020, that the, the rise of, dis and 2016, the rise of disinformation and misinformation was so intense that it rendered obsolete, say, John Stuart Mill notions of free expression and free speech because the notions that we created about free speech and its value were created at a time when disinformation wasn't so rampant and it wasn't so easily and constantly consumed by every American and potential voter. Mm -hmm. So the, the question that always comes is the first question of free speech which, or speech issues is, is the person regulated in a government official, which many of you will be if you're working in a public school or a member of Congress or whatever, or are they a, a, a manager in a private organization? So again, uh, Meta, Facebook has disinformation policies that they act on. The problem here, and then there's secondary issues about foreign speakers, right, uh, which I think a lot of the disinformation uh, questions were. It seems to me the issue with disinformation is the following. Have you ever known somebody that was a really strong Democrat or a very strong Republican? I guess most of us have. Did they think that the other team, the blue team or the red team, was simply uh, ignorant or maybe of certain facts or re not reasoning carefully, or were they lying? There's books. Remember, both Al Franken and Rush Limbaugh had books that... <laughs> referred to on the, on the cover to the lies of the other side. There are no innocent mistakes. Everything, my point being, everything, misinformation is a euphemism for false information. And there is indeed false information. And by the way, the thought is that in most contexts, in a public context, false information is a 
protected. It's not a category that's exempt from the First Amendment. Uh, for, uh, so it can't be taken down as false. For, and I think for the reason that we, there would be abuses of it, right? Plus, people don't not sure what misinformation is. It's one of the, the underlying problem, actually, is nobody trusts anyone else about to identify the mm -hmm. truth, right? Um, for private uh, people, it's much more of a possibility. Facebook's policies are that misinformation in and of itself is not enough. Um, they have uh, committees that they refer to, uh, fact checkers about stuff. And then even when you look at fact checkers, though, the original idea was you would send them something that was online and they would say it's true or false. And then you would tell the person, the user that was publishing it about it, or you would tell everyone that received it, you would tell them this has been judged to be untrue by a fact-checking network. It wasn't, but it's taken down if and removed from the, the platform if it causes immediate real harm. And what, now what is that, right? A riot or other kinds. A lot of it, the, you know, the pandemic was a big test, right? So you would just take it down because it would cause uh, people not to get vaccinated or to, uh, uh, to spread the disease in some way. So that's the kinds of harms. But general, the problem is you're going to, the First Amendment idea, I think, if you're in a free speech mode, you're going to have to tolerate a lot of possibly or indubitably false information. Yes, right there, please. Unfortunately, we are out of time for this part of our session. Please join me in thanking Joe ah, and John. Uh, not just one more. So far. Uh, okay. <laughs>